last time I don't want to extend my car's warranty. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great deal. How's it going? I have a migraine, which sucks. I would have thought I, the you, mirror. You, you know any stretches for that or, or uh, just drugs? <laughs> PT's a lie and nothing's real, so you're screwed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, thanks I would for, have thought thanks for joining us, Eric. Yeah. I this is the mic. Sh- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one with the great jawline I remember you remarked about at the bachelor party. Jawline, that's just the, the that's just the ice tip of the iceberg. I mean, the, I still had that picture of you uh, putting on your pants uh, or tucking in your shirt, something, but your abs, you know, just the right amount, just the right amount of like Burt Reynolds hair on it. And <laughs> Keep going, Eric. He needs this for his Catholic match profile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it was like, what? What? Uh, um, wake up and be a hero today, right? Wasn't that the line? Something That's a like good that. line. That's not what I it was saying. It was something like that. I was no, supposed was to something... go run the next morning, but I didn't. <laughs> so I wasn't right. a hero. <laughs> yeah, but it was something like, you got to run every day until your ankles bleed. Or I remember it was something, <laughs> it was something pretty intense. And uh, It inspired Eric so much that he never ran since then. I, I never ran again. In fact, I, I, uh, I get on my lawnmower to go check the mail. <laughs> Eric, how familiar familiar are you with podcasts or death? Uh, well, I listen to probably two or three podcasts a day, and oh, I, uh, I have on good authority, I will die. Right, right. right. You know, right. I Googled, because obviously, you know, the suggested searches on Google sometimes are, like, so terrifying what a lot of people type in. So I typed in out of curiosity, has anyone never died? Right. <laughs> And one of the other interesting search suggestions was, has anyone never slept? And there is the guy, I believe Albert Helm is his name, from 1862 to 1947, who claimed to have not slept the last 45 years of his life. Although, oh. suspiciously, he claimed, not, he claimed to not sleep, but rather rest. <laughs> He did rest. Yeah. With his I eyes mean, closed and yeah, with right. And yeah. he lived he lived as a recluse, but he lived uh be ninety four years old. Um Who are the two people who have never died? Uh Enoch and Elijah are the um oh. yeah. Well, what about I also, Mary? Is the dormation, right? That's the jury's still out on yeah, that. Mary thing. Mary's questionable, yeah. Dormation yeah. or uh Assumption there, yeah. What about what about Nimrod, Eric? Did Nimrod die? I imagine yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. What land is What's your What's your last name? Free. Fry. Free. It's it's land, free. Land and free, home of the brave. Oh, free, dude! That's badass. Lando, free. I'm gonna just. Uh, I'll say Landon for your mother's sake, but <laughs> in my heart, you, you'll always be Lando, free. You can do Lando. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, make, make this your own. Which you know, I like how you're sort of loosening up here and in that in that direction. There, you know, we want this to be fun. We want this to be light in contrast with this very macabre topic that we are about no, to wade really into. For, uh, all right, all right. Well, welcome to episode 37 of the Speech Guys, featuring everyone's favorite seminary dropout, Matthew Schultz. 
and the man whose jaw could cut diamonds, Mike Schaefer. <laughs> Finally, last and potentially least, the man whom I do not have a personal anecdote for, Landon Free. Great. Great. Discussing uh, a TED Talk by Lucy Galinsky, what makes life worth living in the face of death? Take it away, the speech guys. I don't think she's Jewish. It, what was her name? <laughs> Kalinsky. what did I say? Kalinsky, that's her name. I'll just do the speaker bit again. You can cut yeah, that yeah, together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Today's speech from, uh, it, it is a TED Talk, right? It is a yeah. TED Talk. All right. Uh, today, the speech guys will be discussing what makes life worth living in the face of death. A TED Talk by Lucy Colonisi. Woo! Hey, how about that? Cue the music. Michael Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Matt Schultz, and Landon Fry are all are all here. It's free. Free. I'm just gonna say it. I've been thinking it for ten minutes. I don't want a podcast here. Oh yeah. Now I've seen the road. Pregnancy is a beautiful thing. Pregnancy is a gift. Paint sticks to asteroids. Like, if you don't climb your walls. We are called to emerge from that default setting of self involvement. So, as Eric said, uh, we will be discussing the TED Talk by Lucy Kalanithi, uh, What Makes Life Worth Living in the Face of Death. In the, well, I guess this is the speeches, I feel bad calling it the speeches by losers yeah, series. I was, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I might rebrand this episode as uh, speeches about loss. Cool, yeah, just to be, uh, yeah, this is a, a heavier topic and, and yeah, just a more serious one. But, uh, but yeah, certainly someone who has lost uh, dearly. And uh, I think uh, does so in a very noble way. So, but yeah, so that was the yeah speeches by people who have lost uh, series. And yeah, the other two were certainly not light topics. What losing in war, losing in love. But yeah, this uh, losing it, uh, a loved one uh, is kind of what we're going at here today. I had heard about the book When Breath Becomes Air. From a couple different people. I want to say it came out in what, 2016, 2017? Kind of around that time frame. Yeah, just heard several people talk about it. Never did get around to reading it, but every, like, interaction I've heard from it was, but was nothing short of, like, just a, an amazing book. So, yeah, I didn't realize. I listened to the speech and didn't realize I'd heard that book a lot um, around, but uh, didn't connect the dots until after reading through all our notes. So, Great selection. So before we listen to whatever speech excerpts uh, that you're going to pick out of this 16-minute speech, 
Um, briefly, give brief overview of who Lucy is, what her husband and she did for careers, and what kind of um, time to death uh, they were sort of dealing with here to set things up. Lucy and Paul Kalanithi uh, were met as medical students. They got married. I'm not sure. I guess I don't know exactly when in relation to med school and residency and whatnot, but... So she was, uh, I believe, internal medicine. She is, uh, and then her husband was training to be a neurosurgeon. So he was in his residency as a neurosurgeon um, when he was diagnosed with lung cancer. They initially treated it, and uh, after an unsuccessful treatment, the cancer came back. And uh, at that point, it, it was pretty clear that um, he wasn't going to, uh, to make it. Uh, past uh, past the cancer. So it was about a two-year stretch from when he was first diagnosed to when he died. So at that stage, he, well, yeah, I guess part of the, he was able to return to surgery, at least in, so, uh, in some capacity. But when he kind of saw the tumor was back, that was when he kind of had to stop with any sort of uh, surgical work and basically spent the rest of his life writing his memoir and the book, When Breath Becomes Air, I think the one other pillar to sort of cast our vision for this episode, um, they, Paul and Lucy, also chose to have a child, turned out to be a daughter, um, in the midst of this. Um, so also just something <clears throat> um, for thinking about. But let's go Did ahead. They choose to after they knew the diagnosis? Yeah. Was that that timeline? Yeah. It seemed like it, but I wanted to clarify that. So let's go ahead and listen to that clip here and uh, help uh, help cast that vision a little bit more clearly. A few days after my husband, Paul, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, we were lying in our bed at home, and Paul said, it's going to be okay. And I remember answering back, yes. We just don't know what okay means yet. I fell in love with Paul as I watched the care he took with his patients. He stayed late talking with them, seeking to understand the experience of illness and not just its technicalities. He later told me he fell in love with me when he saw me cry over an EKG of a heart that had ceased beating. We didn't know it yet, but even in the heady days of young love, we were learning how to approach suffering together. We got married and became doctors. I was working as an internist, and Paul was finishing his training as a neurosurgeon when he started to lose weight. He developed excruciating back pain and a cough that wouldn't go away. And when he was admitted to the hospital, a CT scan revealed tumors in Paul's lungs and in his bones. We had both cared for patients with devastating diagnoses. Now, it was our turn. Some people don't want to know how long they have left. Others do. Either way, we never have those answers. Sometimes, we substitute hope by emphasizing the best-case scenario. But researchers have found that when people better understand the possible outcomes of an illness, they have less anxiety, greater ability to plan, and less trauma for their families. 
families can struggle with those conversations, but for us, we also found that information immensely helpful with big decisions. Most notably, whether to have a baby. Months to a few years meant Paul was not likely to see her grow up, but he had a good chance of being there for her birth and for the beginning of her life. I remember asking Paul if he thought having to say goodbye to a child would make dying even more painful. And his answer astounded me. He said, "Wouldn't it be great if it did?" And we did it, not in order to spite cancer, but because we were learning that living fully means accepting suffering. When Paul said, "It's going to be okay," that didn't mean that we could cure his illness. Instead, we learned to accept both joy and sadness at the same time. To uncover beauty and purpose, both despite and because we are all born and we all die. And for all the sadness and sleepless nights, it turns out there is joy. I leave flowers on Paul's grave, and watch our two-year-old run around on the grass. I build bonfires on the beach and watch the sunset with our friends. Exercise and mindfulness meditation have helped a lot, and someday, I hope I do get remarried. Most importantly, I get to watch our daughter grow. I've thought a lot about what I'm going to say to her when she's older. Katie, engaging in the full range of experience, living and dying. Love and loss is what we get to do. Being human doesn't happen despite suffering. It happens within it. When we approach suffering together, when we choose not to hide from it, our lives don't diminish; they expand. I've learned that cancer isn't always a battle. Or if it is, maybe it's a fight for something different than we thought. Our job isn't to fight fate, but to help each other through. Not as soldiers, but as shepherds. That's how we make it okay, even when it's not. Yeah. Do you guys have any examples in your life of people who? You think of like approach death in like a, a noble way or in a way that that impressed you or, or moved you. I think the most obvious examples to me, you know, thankfully those closest to me, um, God willing, uh, none of them lost their lives particularly young. I mean, all of my grandparents passed away in their 80s or 90s. So you know, there's as I alluded to in the outline, there's some family friends,、uh, none of whom whom have died, but there is one individual in our community right now who、um, 
family friend involved with uh, different things like uh, with 4-H growing up who's relatively young I mean probably 60 years old who's dealing with cancer diagnosis but my mom and I were remarking recently like he continues to do his job you know professionally uh, while taking the appropriate cancer treatments and yeah, I just one of these just yeah, salt of the earth for lack of a better word sort of thing. Yeah, I mean just it's cliche, but it's obviously so true. You know, to see someone whom you know both states of life potentially dying and living their life just like any other person in the community. Yeah, I mean it just obviously brings home the reality of death, but also Man, just the extraordinary courage and how inspirational it is to see that. Like, whether this individual lives for 35 more years or three more years, like, I'm always, I know, I'm always going to be sharing this little anecdote uh, of of this uh, gentleman. Yeah, that's probably one of the most striking sort of examples of... um, enduring in a really positive uh way sort of akin to what lucy's describing with paul here um that can think of in contrast again like with grandparents who you know were obviously still scary to die i'm sure when you're in your 80s or 90s yeah obviously a little bit of a different situation to be dealing with i don't i don't have a really strong example of someone like close to me who has been given X number of months to live. Um, certainly, certainly some people who are battling some things and have fought through it or ongoing, but not like not like the six, yeah, four to six months to live um, that I've that I've seen up close. Oddly, I am um, my family, wife, and I. Um, my my seventh and eighth grade Sunday school teacher was given six months to live about a month ago. Um, really strong family friend. Uh, yeah, we grew up with their kids and been pretty close. So he was given, given six months and then had some complications and, and passed away this week. Um, oh and God. so, Sorry to hear that. yeah, we're going to the um, visitation tomorrow back in, back home at the farm. Yeah, I didn't, <clears throat> didn't really like, you know, they're preparing for like a lot of tests and treatment and, you know, some of the things that are described here and it just like didn't even really make it to a lot of the treatment. You know, a lot of, he's got adult kids and grandkids and they all like dropped their lives almost and came home to just spend time with them thinking he had six to 12 months or whatever and, um, Thank God they did, and like they made, you know, a lot of memories the last three or four weeks, not knowing that, that that's all they had. I just remember even at my so my grandfather at his wife, my grandmother's funeral, obviously like visibly sad, had a certain type of resoluteness, but like you could tell it wasn't just like a a distant macho, t- you know, like he was a, a deeply affected by things, and yeah, I just distinctly remember him like finding joy and and kind of interacting with a couple of toddlers that were at, you know, at the burial site and just like seeing that contrast and he could just kind of be the, still be the fatherly figure amidst the most painful thing he ever had to deal with. And then 
kind of more akin to like yeah the, the trying to to deal with or reckon with like the end the end of your life there's a family friend so this was a guy who totally I, I got introduced to him very randomly one day when his wife just needed help getting him into a car after mass so I just drove over to their house they are strangers to me at the time and helped them get you know the the priest knew I was a physical therapist so it was like oh this guy will help you whatever so um, then from there I ended up visiting him about once a week uh, for a while just to do like some extra physical therapy with stuff with him because he had Parkinson's and I remember he kind of recounted to me a discussion he had with uh, a different medical provider. I don't know exactly who it was, but what he said to me was that he, he, this like provider kept asking him questions like, okay, like, what do you want to, like, what's your end goal? Like, what do you want? Like, uh, that's not realistic. What do you really want to be able to do? And, and eventually he, he came to the conclusion that like, oh shoot, like this is actually my goal. And it was to stay strong enough to die at home. Yeah. I thought when, when he, yeah, shared that with me. One, I th- like it just totally reconfigured like how I was approaching them as like kind of an informal medical provider, but still like doing something with them just to, about his you know health and function and whatnot. But also just about life in general, you know, about how your goals change, you know, um, and kind of the mesh point of uh, like when medicine meets life, which I think that that Lucy talks about and really well in the speech, but. I guess with that, like what, um, yeah, what takeaways did you guys have? Or was there anything in particular about the speech that stood out or that, that you, uh, any overarching themes about facing death and, and kind of just that providing more meaning to life and, and whatnot? So I think the most striking thing <clears throat> as an overarching idea about the speech that makes it sort of stick out compared to other speeches on the topic of dying from that sort of modern secular flavor. And I think that most speeches or talks or interviews from that perspective might go one of two ways. Either one, um, man, look at how tough we were. We didn't take no for an answer. We found the cure, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I shouldn't say blah, blah, because, I mean, that there, as we'll discuss, I mean, I think, because that is something that came up, there is a certain certain validity and certain space for the attitude, for sure. Um, but put, put a flag in that uh, point there. Um, and then another point, which I think is becoming a lot more common, is the idea of I'm going to choose the noble thing, quote-unquote, is to choose when I die, and so therefore I'm going to pursue some assisted suicide sort of thing, or euthanasia. Um, Those sort of seem to be like the two modern-day models, and Obviously, I think all of us here are going to say the first one has certain validity, certain limitations, though, um, potentially. And the second one is a little bit more questionable. In contrast with those two ideas, the idea of like resisting death being a battle and believing that one should have access to certain tools for suicide... This speech is very unique because it takes very 
you know, I, ideas which are have sort of been um, monopolized, uh, for better or for worse, by Christianity. This idea of, like, suffering. What do we do with this idea of suffering? And in the modern day, the solution has been mostly to avoid it, it seems like, right? I mean, one could argue that's why we have the opioid crisis in the United States. It's just avoid suffering, avoid suffering. You know, why do we take so much Tylenol, Advil, stuff like that? Not saying you shouldn't take those things, but there is something to be like considered at that point. Whereas in the speech, which I think, you know, what attracted Matt to it and makes us sort of like pick our brains a little bit is that... It uses suffering not as it uses suffering as a model for thought. It says this is not something to be avoided, but rather this is something to be thought through. This is something to be wrestled through. This is the stuff, as she said, mm. or similar David Foster Wallace said, this is water. <laughs> so I think that's what's unique about the speech. That's what sort of stuck out to me, and I think that's the the stuff to be sort of wrestled with here in this episode. You know, she mentions like not in order to spite cancer, you know, which I think kind of gets at one of your, like one idea, you know, that, Oh, we need to beat cancer. Cancer sucks, which that's like a model or or not a model, like a, a catchphrase, right? Isn't that like a advertising campaign? F can F cancer is a really popular, you know, thing now meme. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, certainly, like, yeah, that's not a good, like, yeah, I want cancer to go away. <laughs> like, I hope we find a cure. But yeah, I, I it's just such a, uh, yeah, I guess a nuanced view. Yeah, that, like, suffering is part of life and that this isn't, this doesn't make us less human. Like, this doesn't make life any less meaningful. Um, in fact, like, I think Paul would say, like, yeah, this, like, really forced him to identify like what, what is meaningful? And I, gosh, I just love his response. Just the, you know, would, you know, would having a child make dying even more painful? You know, wouldn't it be great if it did? You know, like that's something I'm going to, I, yeah, I'm going to keep that in my back pocket as just like, uh, yeah, anytime like something gets really hard and there's some, a decision that could make it harder, you know, it's like, all right, like, wouldn't it be great if it did? You know, like, like we need to lean into this, just lean into whatever it is that you're, you're called to do or that like is going to bring, bring meaning and enjoy it to your life at, at the expense of, of your pain. But that doesn't make a good catchphrase to uh, sell t-shirts to raise money for cancer. Probably like the question on my mind when <clears throat> reading this, this, the speech and gaining the perspective and then just like looking through the Wikipedia page of uh, Paul's and trying to understand what he wrote about in the book the main question i asked was like did he believe in god and like how does that inform his perspective on death and don't think that was the case it said he grew up christian but might have <clears throat> kind of thought about becoming a pastor early in life but did leave the faith and did not return to it even through this process I mean, it seemed it seemed like you did in some sense. I don't know if you would claim to be like of any uh, specific. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, it, it made it seem like he he did uh, return. Well, yeah, I mean, it says I yeah I returned to the central values of Christianity: sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness. The values, the val, the 
I agree. He, what I read is that like he agreed with the values. Sure. Okay. Not. Yeah, maybe he didn't not believe in faith. Jesus himself. Yeah. No, yeah. He he said the. What I read is that he um, he left the faith but retained the lowercase mm-hmm. secular values. Um, I see. Maybe I misinterpreted that though, completely. Another quote. So this was Lucy recounting a conversation with Paul. Uh, she says, "One time I asked him straight out, do you believe in God?" And he answered that. And he answered that he thought just as an important question was, "Do you believe in love?" Yeah. Which, yeah, I, I suppose maybe alludes to a certain vagary regarding like uh, defi- defined theology, but certainly seems open to the idea. Seems animus to, I guess, the typically, uh, yeah, I guess the typically like materialist sort of medical world uh, he found himself in. But yeah, maybe not specific, yeah, with a defined theology of any sort, or maybe a spiritual but not religious uh, uh, type of type of thing. But sorry, I just read the article you posted, and I find it a little unclear. My reference was sure. Wikipedia, and it said that they didn't prescribe him to any particular faith even yet um but <clears throat> we haven't read the book so if we're blatantly wrong on this please send an email to <laughs> the speech guys podcast at gmail.com there you go uh, but i think okay. given that it seems hard to even find out from all the sources we have it might be unsure we don't exactly know so so I'd sort of like to wait. So pivoting off of that idea, his uncertain uh, internal disposition towards Christianity, uh, I'd like to wade into the idea of like Lucy and Paul deciding together that they were going to and I use deciding in a somewhat loose way, whether it was how explicit or implicit it was isn't super obvious, but how they went about deciding that they were going to approach uh, the suffering together in a different way. Different enough that she could articulate in a TED talk or a talk that the TED people wanted her to give and that however number of people have listened to and how that question relates to christianity is because you know you look and this actually relates relates to something i brought up before and it's it is the unavoidable codification problem and with the problem i brought in reference to last time was sort of blaming atheism for uh the wokeism that we have today um, so without going to that, just set that aside and coming back to the codification as it relates to this. It's like to a lot of people listening, if you if you if one does not take that next step and wrap this whole experience around with some sort of pointing to or affirmation that yes, the reason that that orienting ourselves towards suffering is valuable and meaningful and purposeful and productive is because it is 
somehow tethering our hearts and souls to something that God did 2,000 years ago, if you don't take that next step, it becomes nothing more than another TED Talk about the 1,050 other TED Talks that exist. How Alex Hohanold free solos El Cap. It's at the same level as that, which is sort of tragic because free soloing El Cap is relatively trivial compared to dealing with this. So yeah, that'd be my question for Lucy here. Okay, you, you came upon this quote-unquote great idea of dealing with suffering this unique way. Is it just a great idea or is there some way that you can take the next step and tether this to something bigger than yourself and not bigger yourself in some sort of trite new age way with white wine and baby boomers on Sunday <laughs> afternoons, but way that is truly bloody and raw in a very literal sense of the word. Maybe a more concise way to put what you just said is this, you know, I like what you said. Is this just not a good idea? But is this like the idea? Oh, yeah. You know, because yeah. I, That's I think, good. That's good. yeah, because when you when you get to it, like the one problem like we cannot solve is sin and death, right? Like there's not that we haven't yeah. solved it yet and we won't. Cancer obviously has more to do with death than sin, but it's like one of those two things that we haven't figured out yet. You know, we can help prolong our lives we can improve our lives the quality of our lives in terms of health and all these other measures but but yeah like we will die um and we will suffer um even uh even if we didn't die we would still suffer <laughs> a lot you know yeah. um in fact that might even be the worst type of suffering you know and and just like that that idea is just so central to to living well and that's, I think, what they get at here in, in a sort of secular type of way. But, but like, there's a reason this is meaningful and this is a bestseller. <laughs> you know, it's because, like, this is me, like, this is the question. You know, this is the problem. Uh, and, and their idea is the idea that, like, embrace the cross and follow him. That's, that's how you beat cancer, so to speak. <laughs> you know, um, even if you, you still die from it. I was reading in an excerpt from Paul's memoir that one of the things that he observed or sort of realized in this experience was, you know, his attraction to empiricism um, or materialism, you know, that you know things by measuring and breaking them up, um, that that that, that we're attracted to that because it is easier in a sense than dealing with the more intangibles, you know, love and God and suffering. Um, I, I think yeah, it might be valuable to bring it up here because that question he brought up with his wife or the other direction um when she asked him do you believe in god and she, he said do you believe in love there is something about that that's really compelling and what sticks out to me about that is because the the first question like do you believe in god like a lot of people would just like sort of shrug their shoulders 
or vehemently say yes, or vehemently say no. But, like, do you believe in love? Like, no one would be offended by that question. They'd be like, oh, I'll, uh, yeah, I believe in love, or I, I sort of believe in love. I was divorced a couple times, blah, 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 right? Everyone sort of feel good. They would, they, it'd feel very natural to them to entertain the question. But the reason that for me, and maybe for Paul, that those questions are really similar is because they are comparably intangible. They are as equally like physically tethered to reality as the other one is. And if you are willing to believe that do you believe in love is an interesting and relevant and enduring question, then considering the question of whether God exists is equally noble and and interesting and worthwhile to entertain and so hopefully with that in mind that might i don't know maybe that makes the idea of like they sort of feed off of you which makes sense if god is this trinitarian being this love bound being that it one makes the other feel more real it makes the other more more rooted in the movements of of reality I don't know. What do you guys think about the relationship of those two questions or ideas? Everyone sees love as like something transcendent that leads to something like eternal and good and true and beautiful and like all these things. And I think I think it's a lot easier to misrepresent God than it is to misrepresent love, maybe, in terms of like, oh yeah, God's just a guy with a beard in the sky who, you know, makes these decisions, you know, just sort of like the Greek god uh, type of idea or, or picture. And then it's certainly like everyone has their own experience with like religion as, as a child that might be good, might be bad. So that kind of like taints that and misrepresents God as, you know, this judgmental, you know, angry person who it's certainly oversimplified to just say like, oh, God is love and that's it, you know, and kind of reduce your theology to that. But at the same time, it's like, well, shoot, that's not really that far off, <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> in terms of like, how do you, how is it that you, you might convert someone, you know, it's like, yeah, you love them. And I like what you mentioned about the, or she, she made a comment about uh, advanced directives being an act of love. Yeah, it's certainly like, it sounds like just like this legal document or this medical document, but, um. But I like what you mentioned, Mike, about how it, yeah, love is tethered to like very real actions, you know, things that you do and, and commitments that you make. And she connected them by saying, you know, that it codifies the promise that till death do us part, I will be there, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a great line. Because, yeah, like when, I guess when we say God is love and there's some part of me, I know it's true, but there's some part of me that kicks back on that, that it's too simple. Or something, right. but I feel like that—that's kind of what breaks that. You know, it's like actually th there's these things that aren't like lovey-dovey, <laughs> you know, and 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 light and bubbly and, and romantic about love that like bring it to life, really. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, something that sentiment, that observation uh, reminds me of a couple th uh, interesting things. Uh, one, there's a little thing, um, in my friend, uh, 
Corey and Brittany's house, like above the dish sink or something, and it says, um, don't wash the dishes because you're dirty. Wash the dishes because you love the person who uses them next or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's the contrast just to make the point, you know, as clear as possible. Yeah, it's it's so it's so easy to just just think that yeah, love is buying flowers, right? Cuz that feels like really just it feels nice and lovely, but rather like doing dishes. Uh something that's practical and pragmatic and maybe you won't even get attention for it or recognition for it. That's that's one one point of that. Another point Oh. Yeah, just really just like breaking apart that idea of love in just this just this raw and visceral way. Okay, dishes. Getting your legal documents together so that your spouse isn't left with a mess when you die, right? I remember this was like an advertisement for like a life insurance commercial. And I remember it was it was a woman, hell, maybe she was a paid actor, I don't know, but it got the point across. She was angry at her husband who had died in a farm accident because he just didn't want to deal with writing the will or stuff like that. And like clearly insinuating, she obviously felt bad for being angry at him when the poor guy was dead. And yeah, I, I don't know, it's, it's just another way to break apart this viscerality of love in these really practical ways that they're just like scary to tread into right because if you write your will like you have to deal with the practicals i will die i can even think of myself like okay if i you know when the day comes like you need to pick your gravesite like there it is it is no longer avoidable like oh maybe i won't die it's you're planning for it right there <laughs> yeah. but I, I mean i referenced this in another episode as well uh, regarding the friend, more of the acquaintance, more or a friend of a friend, you know, who's a therapist, and his exact words before at my buddy's bachelor party. I know there's a weird bachelor party. You guys would get it, but compared to most bachelor parties, you know, we just we just all share just some thoughts of encouragement or just uh, thoughts. You know, uh, some guys married, some guys not, and my friend or acquaintance therapist who was married, mind you. You know, he said, don't wait seven years to say the words um, penis or vagina about sex. And it's like, yeah, couples have sex all the time, right? But the point that I think he was trying to make that obviously hit me hard, you know, because I keep thinking about this, is that are you having sex in a way that is conscientious of the needs and the want, the very actual needs and wants of the other person, right? Maybe they don't like having sex this particular way or that way, whatever, right? But that's such, I would imagine, just like very vulnerable, you know, after the fact, of course, you don't bring this up during, but after the fact, like, you know, or or what what issues do you feel there? And it's like, yeah, it can be. I'd imagine like just be very embarrassing to learn that. Oh, you you know, she actually doesn't like to do things this way. Again, it's just the there's a metaphor of love as the bouquet of flowers, which is 
I mean, there's something to be said for buying roses sometimes, but there's the way that Lucy is getting at here with these legal documents or we're getting at with these other examples of dishes and talking about sex in a certain way and um, whatever the other example I was that is just... It feels like you're walking around... Oh, choosing your burial plot. That was the, that was the other point, but yeah. And I don't know, when 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 was that like brought up to us growing up? Like, <laughs> right. love is... I, you can imagine, like, in religion class, love is getting your mom flowers <laughs> on Mother's Day, which is good and important. You should do that. But, yeah, getting at these... I, I can imagine a bunch of, like, eighth-grade boys hearing some of these things. I mean, like, having these really wide eyes, like, What? what? Man, that sounds scary. But at the same time, like, sounding, like, really adventurous. Yeah. Like, holy smokes. I mean, where are our young women and men going to learn about the raw bloodiness of love, literally, metaphorically, if not from this TED Talk or or weird bachelor parties? <laughs> By raw and bloody, you mean, like... <clears throat> wills and the legal documents find your burial plot don't leave the dish in the sink because you love the next part you know matt you don't have to answer the question but like do you do you have a will we do not no we don't either and it's even on like it's on our list of things to do but like we just haven't done it yet and um yeah, sometimes in these questions I, I do, or just perspectives, it's like rewind the clock 100 years ago, 150 years ago, like how would they have thought about it just as, I think when you think of older languages and stories, it's like, they were born here and baptized here and like they went through a lot more of these tactical things like, and we buried them in the family plot and the cemetery by the church or, or whatever and, and so much in short, like so much of older traditions were like just built in to solve all these problems. Like you didn't ask them because this is the way the family's always done it and it's it's what we're gonna do. And it was it was an in place tradition because like maybe because it was um, yeah, hard to figure out and like what do you do? And so these traditions were made and we've kind of like torn them down a little bit or like something about our culture doesn't bring them up as much or we're more transient and but they were there for a reason it's a theory what i think it's a chesterson theory like always ask why the fence is there before you tear it down um Mm. and i think this is one of them um we don't have all these answers like if you live in Stanford and San Francisco and this couple was probably born elsewhere. It's like, man, what do we do? We've like followed our career. We've followed what society tells us, like keep climbing, keep moving up to the best school and get the best career. And when that stops and it's like, now the backstop is like major life decisions. Like, yeah, it's hard to fill in if, if we've kind of like accelerated on a path outside of, the olden day family radius. Mike's question just being, where do you get taught that? 
like yeah like that there used to be a lot of like yeah family traditions that would just kind of build that in and that's where you'd learn it but yeah i mean it's i mean i guess that's like rule or not rule number one priority number one as a parent you know like yeah i hope i can model that for my son <laughs> in terms of like where where did he, i hope that yeah i hope he learns it from me and and claire i think that's where like that's where people actually do crave Christianity, I think, you know, in terms of like, what, what is love? You know, I know, I guess the most concise definition, just being willing the good of the other, right? Like, obviously that, that leaves something to be desired and that it seems kind of vague and, and almost just tactical. And, you know, where do you see that? Like, I guess just like, I mean, any sort of beautiful story and just like making sure you're, you're pointing that out to your children. And, and to others, you know, just like whenever, like, those beautiful stories really hit you. Um, maybe something on hope. Because I had referenced uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning here. Uh, we still had the beat cancer idea. Well, I also kind of liked Paul's, when he initially transitioned from doctor to patient, he, uh, well, what, like, what, Lucy mentions in the talk is that he felt like he would have somehow he'd, he'd be able to see a path, but that was not the case for him. So Paul, this is Paul's writing. I saw instead only a harsh, vacant, gleaming white desert as if a sandstorm had erased all familiarity. I had to face my mortality and try to understand what made my life worth living. And I needed my oncologist's help to do so. That line in particular just re resonated in terms of like, Everything else is stripped away. You know, like, what am I doing tomorrow? What? Well, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do these things maybe before and after work because they need to get done. And I'm going to spend some time with Claire in the evening and, and play with my son a little bit. And that's it. You know, and that, that's kind of my day, right? But when you strip my life of all of that, like, yep, work is the least of your worries, you know, is the least of your concerns. What are you going to do? Yeah, it does kind of feel like a gleaming white desert, <laughs> you know? Which is to my fault, you know? Yeah, like the, there, there isn't an immediate void. I mean, I'll sit and think about it and I'll like, yeah, I'll be able to like fill that and, and come up with something. But, but yeah, I, I think that uh, I can certainly relate at least to that feeling. I don't know if you guys found that striking, but I, I thought that was, that was something I thought about recently. The feeling of what? Clarify. Of just without like outside of your normal day-to-day -day responsibilities like if all those were taken away like what what would you do you know like what is truly like the desire of your heart like what is truly you know that this you know the deep down uh, which that might be a way to phrase it like outside of the context yeah. of death but in his situation it's like you know he's yeah. facing his mortality mm -hmm. he's got this much time what does he he can't do this thing he's been training for his whole life I mean, you sort of just alluded to it, but I not only in this sort of circumstance are you stripping away your responsibility as some way, responsibilities as some way to spend your time of what the time is that you have left, but, I mean, you're also stripping away, like, your ego. Mm, yeah. And which, like, that's really, like, what it is yeah. that can be so unsettling. It's like, Okay, whatever aspirations you felt you needed to fulfill so that your ego was the perfect size when you died, that's gone. <laughs> your ego 
as with me, which is probably larger than it should be, like, that's how big it is. <laughs> like, and it isn't going to matter when you, yeah, die. So, yeah, I think that, yeah, yeah you just feel, you feel how vapid, how, how weightless your ego is in, in the face of something like that, like a desert. I mean, you, you mentioned uncomfortable vulnerability with like talking about sex with your spouse, right? And being like, oh shoot, like I thought I was this like really great, what you know, like I thought this was a smooth move and like it turns out Clara's like, no, that I didn't really like that, you know? And just like, yeah, that does hurt. <laughs> and that does like that it, there is a certain humiliation there um, or like, you know, death to your ego. But like that is, that is the stuff. You know, that is love yeah. to like enter into that and to be confronted with yourself in a way that you never wanted. So, okay. So to connect my point with yours a little bit more clearly, it's the the relationship there is that you're facing death and your ego becomes useless. You know, so we would say that you are able to orient yourself towards the valuable things more accurately and with what you're saying there in which was in reference to what i was saying you're you're setting your ego aside when you have the courage to navigate these uncomfortable love-based circumstances which is of course you know as we would say that is the right way to go about things as scary as they are um but they one one situation you can't control that you're stripping your ego of it and then the other case you can control it's just, it's just scary you know yeah yeah and, well and i i guess like the next step is, or the additional value other than it being the right thing to do and it like immensely improving your marriage is just that like we're all going to be asked to do that when we die you know, so you can yeah. either do that kicking and screaming and in a way that's unreflective and agonizing in a not really redemptive way, you know, yeah. or you can do it in a way that's still painful, but in a way that you've prepared for by loving others, you know, and in a way that you've prepared for by consciously like entering into these, these smaller episodes of suffering, Yeah, you know? Mm, yeah well said that that's sort of an interesting um not quite digression but just sort of like set out it is something i thought about you know just feeling because you know times feeling a certain um just in moral inadequacy and and just in reflecting on like the the nature of purgatory right and i don't know how i sort of think and just for for non-catholic listeners you know purgatory is the idea that you are you are made holy effectively in the ways that you were not able to become holy in your life and it's i don't know i i think there's a certain like mindset or disposition that's like you know okay be like fairly good during life but then you know purgatory will like fix the rest or something like that 
I don't know. And, you know, we can have a theological guest on at some point to clarify wherever I'm wrong here. But, I mean, I think the right way to think about it and the way that I do tend to think about it is that, like, no, like, you still have to become the person you're called to be, as scary as it is. And even though it might look different in purgatory than it does here, like, you still have to get there. I think it's time for the final bell. Yeah, it's getting sore late, but I feel like there's... I sort of wanted to do that hope thing on... uh. Well, I don't have hope. I have a random one. Present it. We'll consider it. She asked, like, are you most worried about the quality of time rather than the quantity? And just like, yeah, the quality quality of life rather than quantity. I, I got to thinking of that. That made me reference this Wendell Berry speech. So we're way off topic. Maybe we should do this speech another time. But when I first heard it, it really struck me. He, he debated Earl Butts back in the 70s. Earl Butts was like big ag, like farm as much as possible. The big small farmers should get out, whatever. Wendell is a very poetic small farm. The cultivating the earth is Eden is holy. Um, just a quick, quick catch up. They're debating, and Earl spouted off all these stats. He's like, you know, life expectancy is 15 years more. We have indoor plumbing, medical care, infant death. Like, just, like, went through a slew of, like, statistics that look how much life is better in the 1970s versus the 1930s. And it was extremely compelling. It was like, man, yeah, like, there is, like, that is the best thing. That's what we're going for. And I was like, what is Wendell going to say to this? Like, who could disagree with any of those progressive, like, we have a better life? And Wendell was like, who cares about those stats? Like, those weren't his exact words, but it was just like, a qual- like, isn't it about values? Like, do we value love and relationships and how we're able to interact with others and how we work together with our families or, or whatever you would have. And you like almost completely agreed with both of them. Um, in a way they were disagreeing with each other. It struck me as like a, yeah, I mean, what is the difference between the average life expectancy of 85 versus 80? And then maybe even make it more extreme. And like, I, I, I kind of feel bad for saying it, but like if, if your quality of life is, very high until 65 is that better or worse than quality of life yeah. till 85 and he yeah for him to just flippantly be like life expectancy is like is that our combined goal as humanity is to just inch that number up every year like does that actually matter i don't know the details of his medical situation there might have been more aggressive ways to treat it that maybe could have gotten him through but would have totally or but like the odds would have could have been slim. Yeah, yeah, I guess a lot of this is speculation. Maybe cut this out. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there is a certain certain sense of like, yeah, I, I guess a comparison here. Why does Paul need five terrible years as opposed to two where he like really deeply embraces the meaning of life? And, you know, and it's like an anti – because I, I know that some people I think mistakenly – view like end of life morality is like uh, as like uh 
are people who, you know, I guess like at least the Catholic view on a lot of end of life morality cases is being like just vitalist, you know, just like keep the person a lot, you know, which, which isn't true. And I think that this actually describes it pretty well. Cause I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think they really advocate for like assisted suicide in this thing. All right. That's not right. the, the yeah. point isn't. I, in fact, I think they might argue against that with like, there is a, there is something meaningful about living. And like, that's what's going to govern your decisions. Right. Whereas like anyone who says like assisted suicides, the answer, you're basically saying there is no meaning to living or at least under these circumstances, there isn't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of, I'm trying to do something with your thought there, uh, assisted suicide. And I feel like there's a certain amount of like relationship there to like the idea of, abortion where it's questions like well what about da 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 what about da 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 circumstance but the the question is like far more complex than that and like what i mean by that is that that individual who's considering assisted suicide <clears throat> the person who's considering that is going into that decision with a certain mindset and so it's hard to judge, like, oh, well, maybe that should be allowed if da-da-da. If you're, as Lucy is presenting, I mean, I think we agree, like, really well, The there's another way to approach this, this whole thing, um, that captures a greater spectrum of the capacity to feel as a human. And is going to make your legacy endure far longer. If you're not approaching your situation with that attitude, it, it, that's obviously going to affect what you, if you think that euthanasia is the quote unquote right decision at a certain point. Just in the exact same way, whether or not having an abortion is the quote unquote right thing to do. Well, it's like. It's not like it's just this thing you suddenly like wake up in one day. It's like the how you live your entire life up to that point is going to affect whether you think it's reasonable to make that decision. You know, that 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 decision doesn't live on an island, you know, and whether or not you can tolerate that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I guess to sort of like summarize my point, it's dealing with these sorts of questions like end of life issues or beginning of life issues it's they just don't exist on an island and it's you can have the exact same circumstance with two different people and one person they just cannot even imagine like oh how can you possibly live through that and yeah it's it's yeah Final bell? I think it's time for the final bell. One more round. There's no stopping this now. This is our round. Don't stop it now. We're starting. We don't stop. All your strength, all your power, all your love, everything you've got. This is all life here. Do it now. All right, so final bell question. We've talked about what makes life meaningful or what gives life meaning. Um, in the face of death or what makes it worth living rather 
Paul wrote about his kind of vision of the desert kind of in the early stages of him realizing he was facing his mortality and the sort of directionlessness. And he had, I guess, for, I, I, yeah, from the time he wrote that, I suppose I don't know the exact timeline, somewhere between 18 months or so before he was going to die. Which I feel like most people, when they phrase that question, they say six months, a year, whatever, you know, a certain time frame like that. Um, like, what would you do? I think a more interesting question might be, you find out at the end of your workday that at midnight that night you're going to die. What would you, what would you do? I feel like this gets at that question and kind of brings up those things a little more acutely and in a way that I think would make for an interesting final bell question. We're we're in the desert and that sun is blinding. Blinding. We were just driving through our desert in our Lexus, air conditioner on full blast, and it just ran out of gas. <laughs> we're in there. But I feel like this gets at it because kind of like I, I mentioned earlier, like the uh, just being removed from all of the things that would occupy your time. You know, so you just finished your work day. That's kind of like your normal day to day. You didn't have a choice to skip it. You already went. You put in your time. Yeah. All right. Seven hours. Well, I'm glad that we start work at seven so that I'm done by three. <laughs> so that gives me a little more time than you guys. I don't know. I feel pretty good about my answer that it feels believable and that is what I want to do. So uh, I jotted down in the notes, I'd probably call... All of my my crews, the speech guys, the Dinklings, shouts the Dinklings, <laughs> few few other close friends, um, I would say, uh, probably call all of them. And I don't know if I'd have the guts to do this. I don't know if my thoughts would change once I'm on the phone. But I I feel compelled. Maybe I'd spend seven minutes on the phone with them. Uh, if I really like them. Seven minutes know. on the phone I think with the like longest... one person or like, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. one person. Um, maybe a few outliers of like 20 minutes, probably crying by the time I hung up, maybe. I think I'd feel compelled to tell them one way they hurt me and one way I felt felt blessed by them. Okay, so run through those uh, those phone calls, and then um, probably drive over to uh, my mom and dad's. Maybe uh, pray rosary on the way. Explain to my parents that um, Matt is taking my life at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I just I actually just well I referenced this in the last episode. Uh, wrote wrote an article about praying with people, so I probably pray with my mom and dad. For, uh, for a minute or so. And then uh, drink some good IPAs, play some good music, and uh, feel feel that feel that breeze on the porch coming through and um, wait wait for that uh, that death bell at midnight. Me and the devil. We're walking side by side. <laughs> that's Robert. That's Robert Johnson. That's the music I'd be playing. Maybe some Fleetwood Mac. 
Who knows? I might have a few IPAs to start calling next girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I get off work at five, but I, uh, yeah, I guess Claire and I would go out to dinner. Be good to have one last meal with her. Uh, Abe would be there too. Um, we'd get home. Screw the dishes. <laughs> um, but uh, Claire's Claire's gonna wake up the next day and hate you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, play with Abe. Getting a little teary eyed. This is weird. Um, I suppose I'd probably let him stay up a little past his bedtime. Um, Shoot, I didn't think I'd cry on this. What the heck? Yeah, I don't know. I think the rest of the evening, I'd call my parents. Call my siblings. Might call you guys, but I have a wife, so I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. Um, Matt, who? (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, I don't know. I guess Claire and I would decide the rest of the what the rest of the evening look like. Yeah. Yeah, I did when I read this question. I was like, "Oh, that's a fun mental exercise." And then I listened to Mike <clears throat> and started thinking of my answers like, "Ah, this if you actually like internalize it, it's fairly emotional." So, I feel for you, Matt. Tell like, I it, yeah. Definitely never thought about the, you kind of maybe perhaps think about the six month thing, not the, not the six hour thing. I, I would say probably, I don't, I don't know if I would do dinner. Who cares about food at that point? You, you feel, eat? I think so. I think it'd be like waste time going out somewhere and I don't want to waste time making stuff. Maybe you could go out and just be like, well, we'll just park here for like three hours and like knock through some things thinking about first of all thinking about the legal i would kind of be like hey here are my passwords to everything just make sure you can get in like these three or four things and yeah there's my secrets you can find everything with with those three passwords um i'd maybe like make calls as they came to me but I'd be tempted maybe just to like turn on a phone and hit record and be like, you know what, as we talk and as like these different people come up, like maybe I won't have time to call them all, but I'll talk about them or my, like wish them a goodbye and just like send them the recording later. Like, and here's like an audio of the last six hours and they don't pick up or I don't get to them. You can at least share some, some, thoughts or whatever i think i would write a letter to my children too yeah don't know if i could see everyone in person legit if it was where i'm at now and it was tomorrow it's like i don't want to drive for three or four hours so that part would kind of suck to not see some people really i don't know probably some amount after the initial shock of just reassuring others and being funny and perhaps giving some testimony too okay we 
brought it home with that final bell. Next episode, we'll have Ross back on. And uh, he's at the Cardinals opening day uh, against the against the non-Americans to our north. Um, Landon, what we got going on <clears throat> next episode? TBD, but we'll follow the theme of um, somebody who lost in, in death. Somebody who lost in love, somebody who lost in war, and we'll round out. Oh, lost in money. Lost in money was my lost suggestion. It, lost their money, their riches, their fame is what we will try to... Or lost their soul. Or lost Ooh, their soul. Those are, those are the um, things I am uh, deeply exploring. Soul, money, fame. Right. Learning from them. Lovely. Well, with that... Thanks for drinking. And thinking. With us. <laughs> hey, be safe out there. We'll talk to you soon. Cue the music. I suppose it's time to go. Though I'd rather stay. Dead ends come and go. Look toward the horizon. Up ahead you find. A peace of mind, relief from the trying I had burned a bridge, wrecked in a ditch Had to ask forgiveness Dead ends come and go Look toward the horizon Oh, there are stories to tell the times we grew and the times we fell Oh, I've been afraid some days But the road will lead us to a better place Road will lead us to a better place